Well, I was trying to uh, think of uh, something else I could apologize for this week so that I could uh, buff um, Elder Hollander's advice two weeks in a row. Uh, but the best thing I could come up with was that I stayed up past my bedtime for the last two nights or that the, the uh, podium was on the opposite side of the stage. And neither of those really seemed worth apologizing for, so got nothing for you. If I drag, it's completely on me because I am definitely uh, juiced up with enough coffee today. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we are grateful to be here together as your people. I pray that you would use this time to equip us, to strengthen us, that we would uh, take serious the call to uh, put our whole hope, all of our trust in the gospel, and that we would also seek to understand it from Scripture as clearly as possible. Uh, may, you use, may your spirit be with us today and use this time for our profit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So when you consider the temptations that Christians face, um, there are many things that I'm guessing would come to mind when you think of that. Uh, you might think of a lust, or anger, or pride, or envy. But if I had to guess, um, I would, there's one that I do not think that would uh, likely be the first to come on many people's radar. And that is the temptation to get bored of the gospel. On one hand, I hope that this sounds absurd. For those of you who know the overwhelming goodness and mercy of God that's been shown in the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of his son, this should seem absurd. This should be, seem absurd that people would get bored of this. For it is the most glorious news in human history. But our experiences, I think, show us that despite the amazing grandeur of the news of the gospel, we are tempted to get bored with it. First thing that comes to my mind is the zealous young man who first comes to Christ and is completely awestruck with what Christ has done for him, and then begins musing on the mysteries of the faith, trying to uh, figure out how do God's sovereignty and human responsibility go together. Not much long after that, they're considering the debate of the different lapsarianisms, and then there's all the eschatological rabbit trails that they go down. And it's not that it's wrong to consider these things. They're good things to consider. But there is a temptation there to let these intellectual musings eclipse the gospel in their hearts and minds. But this isn't the only crowd that's tempted. There are also those who've been in church for many years. The gospel word is preached. The story of Jesus is shared. The good news of the gospel comes up. And they, there's a temptation to check out. Yeah, 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 I know, it. I know this. And it, some get to a place where they have itching ears not to be reminded of the central truths of the Scripture, but have itching ears to get a new detail or a funny story more than to be reminded of their one true hope. And then there's also those who look at the brokenness of the world and say things like, I know the gospel, but what we need, uh, what about all the injustice? I know the gospel, but really anything after that. And there's this, there's this temptation to uh, want to make that thing which is central something else than the gospel. And there are many other ways that this temptation can manifest itself. But one thing I do hope is that we can see the folly of being bored with the gospel. Those who become bored of the gospel, I think there are really two common results of this 
One is to start making other things more important, making good things ultimate things. And then there are those who also start tinkering with the gospel. They try to use it to support some other agenda. And this morning we're going to be considering the gospel, and I think that some of the problems that we'll be considering are the results of people being bored by the gospel. And if I can say right at the outset, this is a temptation that we are all susceptible. So let us tread carefully as we move forward. So as Titu mentioned, this is the uh, second part of a Sunday school uh, lesson that I started last week. And um, it's chapter four of the Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert's book, uh, What is the Mission of the Church? And this chapter is titled, uh, Are We Missing the Whole Gospel? Understanding the Good News. And I tried to lay out basic, their basic presentation of this chapter in a handout that I passed out last week, and I believe that's been passed out now. And I think being able to visually see this will help us. And since not everybody here was present for last week's lesson, I just want to briefly go over the basic uh, idea of what Gilbert and DeYoung are presenting in the chapter. So the bulk of the uh, chapter is really spent talking about two aspects of the gospel, what they call the zoom lens aspect or, and the wide-angle lens aspect. Also, they refer to it as the gospel of the cross and the gospel of the kingdom. And they want to be clear that this is not two gospels, but two senses of the one gospel. But they also want to be very clear that they see in Scripture that the gospel of the cross is the fountainhead of the gospel of the kingdom. That is, you cannot have the gospel of the kingdom without the gospel of the cross, and the gospel of the cross is the way into the gospel of the kingdom. So, to better understand what they're getting at, they think that these two aspects of the gospel are really answering two different questions. The gospel of the cross is answering the question, what must I do to be saved? While the, those who speak of the gospel of kingdom are oftentimes trying to answer the question, what is the whole good news of Christianity? And these two aspects can be summarized in a variety of ways. The gospel of the cross can be summarized as the good news that God is reconciling sinners to himself through the death and resurrection of Jesus, or the good news that God has acted to save sinners through the death of Jesus in their place in his subsequent resurrection, or the singular blessing of forgiveness of sins and restore relationship with God through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. So we see that when we talk about the zoom lens aspect or the gospel of the cross, we're talking about Christ's atoning work for sinners so that they may be reconciled to God. But there is also the wide-angle lens aspect of the gospel, which could be summarized as the gospel is the good news that God is going to renew and remake the world through Christ, or the promise that God has made to his people, including not only the forgiveness of sins, but also the resurrection of the body, the transformation of the world, the establishment of God's kingdom, and all the rest. Or all the great blessings that God intends to shower on his people, starting with forgiveness, but cascading down from there all the way to a renewed and remade creation in which they will spend eternity. So again, Gilbert and DeYoung see both of these aspects of being ways that the scripture talks about the gospel but that the gospel of the cross is the fountainhead to the gospel of the kingdom. So today's time together, we're really going to be looking at this in two parts. As we seek to clarify what does the Bible mean when it speaks about the gospel, 
Uh, the first part is going to be about uh, being clear about what the gospel message is. And how does this tie back to the idea of mission? Well, as we've seen, if we're trying to support the idea that the mission of the church is to make disciples, central to that task of making disciples is the gospel message. And if we're not clear about the message, how can we be clear about our task? So seeking to make sure that we are being clear about how we think about and speak about the gospel. And the second part will be understanding gospel implications. That is, if the gospel is our central message, and if we have it correctly understood, what are the implications of that for how we think about that task of making disciples? So last week, I spent, uh, so starting with the first one, our mission, if our mission is to make disciples, we better know what the, me- what the message central to making disciples is. And last week, I spent a, a bit of time on those who would want to focus on the gospel of the kingdom almost at the expense of the gospel of the cross. At least that's how it can be very easy to read a lot of these guys. I'm not going to rehash everything, but I am going to go back to one of the more provocative quotes that I shared, which is from Matthew Bates, where he said, what John MacArthur, John Piper, R.C. Sproul, Albert Muller, and others associated with them have been asserting to be the heart of the gospel is not even part of the gospel in scripture. They've been getting the framework and the heart of the gospel wrong. And we don't have to agree with everything about these men that he, he listed, but what these men have in common is that they have devoted their entire lives to defending the centrality and the veracity of the gospel message of the cross. And there are points in time in the discussion where I do wonder, is this about semantics? And this guy, as I read him, he's very clear that this is not a a debate just about semantics. It's not just a debate about words, but there are central ideas of what we think of as the scriptural gospel message at stake here. So the accusation of Bates, and I think uh, of guys like Scott McKnight and even N.T. Wright, against folks like us, is that those of us who would see the centrality of the gospel of the cross, is that we have lost, or that we ignore, or do we dismiss all of those other aspects of the gospel which scriptures speak about, the gospel of the kingdom. I don't think that this is a fair assertion. But they go further, not just saying that we ignore them, they say that it is actually wrong of us to make the gospel of the cross central. So as I mentioned earlier, there are men who we have, I think many of us have benefited from, who are committed to that. And that is the only picture of T2 I was able to find on Google. And this is important. This is important that we address, I think, these accusations. So what, what is the response? What, what, and what is the response against this accusation? Well, first of all, I, again, since we're using Young and Gilbert primarily as our book study, uh, here are some statements from the book supporting this idea of the gospel of the cross being central. So they, they say, the New Testament writers are content to call the one blessing of forgiveness of sin through the death of Christ the gospel. This is important. No other single blessing by itself ever warrants that dignity. 
They also say that the gospel of the kingdom necessarily includes the gospel of the cross. You cannot proclaim the full gospel, going back to the chapter title, if you leave out the message of the cross. Even if you talk for an hour about the other blessings God has in store for the redeemed, unless the blessings of the gospel of the kingdom are connected to the cross, you don't have a gospel at all. I hope we're seeing that central to thinking about the gospel is forgiveness of sin through the work of Christ, which culminated on the cross and then his resurrection. One more from DeYoung and Gilbert. The gospel of the kingdom... The broad sense of the gospel, therefore, is not merely the proclamation of the kingdom. It is the proclamation of the kingdom together with the proclamation that people may enter it by repentance and faith in Christ. Perhaps, in fact, it would be more accurate, though clunky, to speak of the gospel of the cross and the gospel of the kingdom through the cross. Now, last week, I actually front-loaded a lot of the work from scripture where we were seeing this idea come up over and over again, and I can't rehash that all. I do have a couple of passages that I do want us to look at, but before we move forward, any questions? Adam. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. And one of the, the dangers of this, I'm making these broad generalizations, is there's diversity in what some of these people that would be a focus on the gospel of kingdom would espouse. Um, some would focus like narrowly on the kingdom being the church. In fact, I think I have a quote from Scott McKnight later who, who talks about that very narrowly. There are other people who want to talk about these kingdom in these kind of broad, vague terms that would seem to be including everybody. Including everybody benefiting from the kingdom, whether or not they're redeemed or not. Does that answer your question? Any other questions? Okay, let's look at a a couple texts just to support this idea of of the centrality of the gospel of the cross. So one of the the texts is uh, a sermon from Acts chapter 13. And this is especially important because one of the arguments that guys like uh, Scott McKnight and uh, Matthew Bates make is they they continually are making appeals to the sermons in Acts. And look how the apostles preached the gospel. But let's look at how the gospels preach the, uh, how the apostles preach the gospel. I originally had the full text up here and it was tiny print, completely useless, and it would have taken a a bit more time to go through. So what, what we have here is I've taken the end of this sermon. And Peter here has started by talking what you could say would be uh, really the gospel of the kingdom kind of talk, talking about the big picture of what God is doing through his uh, son, about the Messiah, and about what the Messiah will ultimately accomplish. But then we get here, and the, the apostle speaks in no qualified terms. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins and by him everyone who believes is justified from all 
from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. And we see that at the climax of this sermon, at this, at, at really at the center of this redeeming work of Christ, of the Messiah, is the forgiveness of sins. You don't get the benefits of the Messiah in his kingdom and all that he is ushering in unless you have been forgiven of your sins and brought, been brought in through the cross. And so when we want to defend the centrality of the cross, there is overwhelming scriptural warrant for it. But let's look at one more text, 1 Timothy 1.15. Now this passage follows uh, the Apostle Paul mentioning that he has been entrusted with the message of the gospel in verse 11, and here we see in verse 15, he says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What did he come into the world to do? To save sinners. I really have a heart of whom I am chief. It is really, really hard to read, guys, that somehow can't see the centrality of the cross, the centrality of the forgiveness of sins, And I hope there's a lot of you in here saying, yep, this almost seems unnecessary because it is so obvious. But I do think if these are messages being out there, the things that people are buying into, we have to be prepared to discuss it, to see how overwhelmingly wrong some of these guys are that want to take the central focus of the gospel message off the cross. So we look briefly at their critique of those who would want to uh, focus on the central message of the gospel of the cross. Let's look briefly at the critique that some have made of them. Gilbert spent actually quite a bit of time interacting online, defending his thesis against them, asserting that they have actually, in many ways, lost the gospel of the cross. That they have so focused on the gospel of the kingdom that they have lost the centrality of Christ's forgiving work on the cross as the way into all the benefits that come from him. Yet these guys deny this. This is what Gilbert said. He said, why is there so often an impulse to take the story of Jesus' kingship? So when we think about Jesus' kingship, that's all the blessings with him being the king and divorce it from the realities of personal salvation, forgiveness, atonement, and justification. They seem to be saying that Jesus is king, is the gospel, and that personal salvation, atonement, and justification are not. He's being charitable by saying they seem. As we saw in the quote from Bates, he was the one who used that very unqualified language of us getting the gospel wrong. But they, these guys go on, and oh, one more, uh, I'm going to throw in Michael Horton here. He's said some good stuff on this as well. Uh, so he says, Scott McKnight is reacting against a serious weakness of contemporary evangelicalism. Let me pause. This is actually why some people do buy into what they're saying. They start with a lot of uh, critiques of broad evangelicalism that we would agree with. Things that we've experienced things that might be really prevalent, some things that might be one-off kind of things, but that a lot of people... Uh, agree with their critique, agree with the weakness that they see. So they get sucked in, and then they follow a line of thinking that really shouldn't follow from the critique. So he says, reacting against the serious weakness of contemporary evangelicalism that plays out in church life abundantly. Two enthusiastic readers of Scott McKnight's book, 
I'd caution against exchanging one set of reductionism for another. The reductionism that he's talking about being reducing the gospel to being merely the gospel of the kingdom, the broadest sense of all that the gospel would entail. So what do they say? I'm not going to go too much longer into quotes, and I did choose one from N.T. Wright, mainly because he is a guy that a lot of these other guys are going to as a sort of mentor or quoting or asking him, to, or he's writing introductions or forewords to their books. And so he said, I'm perfectly comfortable with what people normally mean when they say the gospel. I just don't think that is what Paul means. I just don't think that is what Paul means. In other words, I'm not denying that the usual meanings are things that people ought to say, to preach about, to believe. I simply wouldn't denote those things. Um, He's basically saying that all those things that we say are the gospel, they're true things, they just aren't the gospel message. I've spent a bit, I probably spent way too much time trying to understand these guys. Spent way too much time over the last couple weeks reading their material. Couldn't read their entire books, but I tried to read at least the introduction or book reviews of them or listen to interviews with the authors to try to get my mind around. And I came to a point where I didn't think it was that much beneficial, that beneficial, and I don't to completely understand them 100%. And I don't think that we need to get too sidetracked in completely understanding them. Either they're being confusing by saying, oh, we believe all those things, but it's not the gospel. The gospel has this very specific use, and every time you see the gospel tied to those things, those are secondary from it, whatever. And you say, whatever, you just spent all this time talking about them giving us quotes, setting it up in terms of this. So here's the deal. I want to land the plane. And hopefully we can land this plane by saying, regardless of whether they're being confusing or just straight up losing the gospel... What can we benefit from this discussion in seeing some of the pushback, seeing some of at least the tendencies to remove the cross from its central position? And luckily, the guys who are interacting with them see that there is still benefit. Even if at the end of the day there's complete agreement, even if they can't even come to agreement on what each other fully mean, there is still benefit of this kind of conversation. Gilbert said, here's the important thing. If any of this has whetted anyone's appetite to understand the whole Bible better, to see Jesus in his saving work more clearly, to behold our crucified and resurrected king more brilliantly in all his breathtaking beauty, then that's a win, and I'm happy to leave it right there. And Michael Horton said after interacting with uh, McKnight a bit, despite my concerns, this is a great starter for some remarkably important conversations. And if nothing else, these guys are fodder for us thinking more deeply, more clearly about the gospel and sharpening our position. And I want to address four straw men arguments that I think they make against us. Now you might think, well, straw men, isn't the idea of a straw man that it's not really representative of you? You, you create a straw man, a fake representation, and then knock it down, saying, see, I've just pro- disproven you. And you're like, you didn't disprove anything because that wasn't even my position. Well, the benefit of straw man is it can be a point of reflection. We think to ourselves, that's not what we believe. But is there any merit on why they would think we believe that? Maybe, maybe not. 
So let's consider what I think some of the straw men that they would make against us. And they, they, they are pointing at reformed evangelicals. I, when I first started reading them, I thought they were just talking about broad evangelicalism and uh, maybe some of the more evangelifish parts of it. But um, when you read their material, they're, they're, they're take, putting their sights on, on guys in the, uh, on the confessionally reformed camp even. So here are some of the accusations. You make the gospel about your response to decisions, not about the story of Jesus. Well, on top of that being nonsense, not true, um, what are they getting at here? What are they getting at? Do you, have you ever heard the gospel presented in a way that the focus seems more about what you do than the objective reality of what Jesus did? Think about 1 Corinthians 15, how it lays out what Christ has accomplished in history according to Scripture. Let's actually turn there. It's worth taking just a second. 1 Corinthians 15. Start it. Pick up at verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. Some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. The gospel is an objective message rooted in what Christ did in history. And it is good news, regardless if some souls go to eternal damnation. Because what Christ has done is truly a good thing. And that is the center of that good news. There is no good news without what Jesus did. But he accomplished something for people. And what at least McKnight and Bates are saying, they continually use this language of the gospel is the narrative of Jesus. It's the story of Jesus. As soon as you talk about the necessity of faith, that's a response to the gospel. And there's a, there's a sense of that which is true. Like, me believing isn't the gospel. But the fact that the way that what Jesus objectively did in history applies to me through faith is part of the gospel. How, how is that good news without the part which says, and this can be applied to you, and how is that the case? So we shouldn't ever uh, present the gospel as though it can be uh, minimized to what you're doing. Um, 
and your response, because it is fundamentally rooted in what Christ historically and objectively did, but tied to that is how the what he accomplished is applied to us, applied to those who need that redemption. Second straw man is you detach the gospel from the broader biblical story. So again, I personally don't think that that's what we've done. Are there ways that we have spoken where someone may get that impression? Maybe. But again, 1 Corinthians is helpful here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, because notice that phrase, according to the scriptures. Our gospel message is not just found in the gospel accounts. It is found throughout all of scripture. And uh, we should be, remember, remember that and strive to do that. I was thinking about the series that I did with the youth group uh, just a couple months ago. And I'm trying to think if any... Nobody, at least in the front, was there. Okay. So we, uh, honestly, I did a little bit of introductory stuff in the New Testament, and then we spent an entire month in the book of Genesis, in the gospel in the Old Testament, showing that the gospel is not just something that shows up in the New Testament. It gets its, its uh, fulfillment and a greater clarity, but we see so much of the gospel there in the very first book of the Bible. So let's, whether we think that this is a fair characterization of or not, let's take uh, it as a call to remember to uh, never detach the gospel from the broader biblical story. It was actually interesting. Uh, uh, so Gilbert, he gave a, an excellent lecture that I highly recommend at T4G a couple of years ago, what the gospel is and is not. And he shows how the, uh, he basically gives a biblical theology of kingship and showing how the idea of a king in scripture is continually tied uh, to a representative head who suffers on behalf of his people. And so what he's doing is uh, they want to talk about the, the King Jesus gospel, and he says, absolutely, King Jesus is the gospel, but that can't be separated from his representing his people and uh, suffering on their behalf. The next three straw men arguments are, are very closely related, and I think the response to them can be presented in one bat, which is uh, one straw man argument is you make the gospel a means to your, your personal benefit. Another is the gospel doesn't say anything about the lordship of Christ. And a third is the gospel is simply about going to heaven. All of these accusations essentially boil down to one thing, which is you're not very clear about what you're saved from, and you're not very clear about what you're saved unto. Or in other words, you're just vague about what it means to be saved. So here are some, again, I think this, these are all false accusations, but let's take the moment to pause and see, is there anything in these criticisms that may be true, at least in the way that we emphasize things, in a lack of clarity, in, in uh, maybe fuzzy areas where we haven't been uh, clear enough? So let's think about what the, boss got, uh, what the Bible scriptures mean when they think, say, Talk about being saved. So, uh, first of all, when, we, when it speaks about us being saved, we are saved from God's wrath, we are saved from being enemies of God, and we are saved unto reconciliation with God. Also, when the scriptures speak about being saved, we are saved from idolatry, 
We are saved from uh, serving things that are not truly God. We are saved from the idolatry of even our own desires and passions. And we're saved unto worship. We are saved unto worship of the true God with all of our beings. We are also saved from being slaves to sin, being bondage to sin and having lives where as soon as we think we may have turned from one sin, the only option is to turn to bondage to another sin. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of uh, kind of wondering how a non-believer maybe has uh, overcome a serious addiction and think, wow, it seems like they overcame a sin outside of the power of the Holy Spirit. The, The unfortunate thing is anybody who is outside of Christ, as soon as they turn from one sin, the only thing that they have left as options is just other sins to be enslaved to. Maybe they're not sins that are going to kill them instantaneously, as maybe a severe drug addiction would be, but they would have, all they have is other sins to turn to. But in Christ, when we are saved, we are saved from idolatry, saved from slavery unto sin, unto the lordship of Christ. We no longer are slaves to sins. We are now slaves to Christ. We are also saved from hell, from eternally suffering the wrath of God into an eternal hope of a new heavens and a new earth. And we are also saved from being people who had no people. We are being saved from not being a people unto being part of God's people. We are saved unto the church. So when we speak to people about the gospel, I think it's really important for us to remember not to just use vague language of being saved. What are we saved from? And what are we saved unto? Certainly central to all of that is saved from our sins unto reconciliation with God. And it's when we are reconciled with God and we, when we are able to know him as our God that there is a whole wellspring of benefits that flow from that. But if we get nothing else from this discussion, hopefully we see the centrality of being clear about the gospel, being clear about what it means to be saved, both what we're saved from and what we're saved unto, and being clear that the central, central to the message of the gospel is Christ's forgiving work and the message of the cross. I have about seven minutes left, and that's fine for the last section that I have here, but before I do so, any questions? Okay, so what I'm doing now is I'm, I'm switching gears to some of the, the guys who are in confessionally reformed circles. I don't think that they have the gospel wrong. I think each one of these men understands the centrality of the gospel of the cross. But what they do, at least this is my reading of them, is they emphasize the gospel of the kingdom, oftentimes for the sake of using the gospel to support a call to social action. So let's look at some of these things that these guys said. Each one of these men that I'm going to quote, I have benefited from in some way. Each one of them, I kind of pause and think, why did you just say that? Okay. 
Anthony Bradley. Really enjoyed some of the things he's written, and I find him very puzzling on this one. Evangelicalism's reduction of the mission of Christianity to the extra-biblical phrase, the Great Commission, by the way, that's the whole point of the book we're reading, is to support the view that he's about to contradict, serves as an obstacle preventing white evangelicals from connecting the gospel to the lived experience of African-Americans. Great Commission Christianity is a truncated view of the gospel, the kingdom and redemption that may permanently keep evangelicalism one of America's only predominantly white spaces. He goes on. I define the gospel by saying it is the good news of God's saving work in Christ and the spirit by which the powers of sin, death, and judgment are overcome, and the life of new creation is inaugurated, moving toward the glorification of the whole cosmos. The kingdom of God is the reign of God dynamically active in human history through Jesus Christ over the entire cosmos. Redemption, then, is God's work to restore the whole of creation to himself. Now, if this is all we had of Bradley, you might come to the conclusion that he's in the camp with the other guys. Other stuff Bradley's written, he's adamantly clear about the centrality of the cross. He wrote a whole book uh, uh, refuting um, black liberation theology, which lost the gospel, which, uh, which lost the gospel in the sense that we would want to talk about the central redeeming work of Christ. And he sees himself as kind of uh, being in the middle of like uh, the, those who want to subscribe to a social gospel got it wrong, but evangelicals have gone too far. In responding to that, in, in, the, in the process, they have lost the black community. Another uh, figure that I'm sure some of you are familiar with, a guy who sometimes I read him and think that was phenomenal, and other times I hear him speak, and I'm tempted to cry. Not that good. I won't go into the things that he has said sometimes that just... But here. Through the person work of Jesus Christ, God fully accomplishes salvation for us, rescuing us from the judgment for sin unto fellowship with him. Great. Gospel of the cross. And then restores the creation in which we can enjoy our new life together with him forever. I don't have a problem with him saying that. I think he's talking, starting with the gospel of the cross and showing that from the gospel of the cross there are greater benefits. And he's one of the guys that I spent a bit of time this last week trying to get my mind around. What's he doing here? He's not post-millennial. And if, I don't want to lose you on that. If you don't know what I mean, just ignore me for a second here. But he doesn't believe, or you know, here's what. He doesn't believe that the kingdom of God is going to be ushered in in its fullness, before the return of Christ. And so I'm trying to figure out, how does that, if the kingdom of God isn't coming before the return of Christ, what is it that we are trying to build here? Because he's using this definition of the gospel to spur us on to social action. Does he merely mean this? That one day God is going to bring about his kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth, and that shows us that God cares about the material world. God cares about things like justice. God cares uh, about, um, peop about people's lives. So therefore, we should as well. And as ambassadors of God, as representatives of God, we should live as people who embrace kingdom values. I think so. I think we could agree with that kind of definition, that we should be 
uh, living as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. I think Jonathan Lehman, in the book we read two or three years ago, said something very similar about how we should be living in this life. But Keller seems to constantly be wanting to stay more than that. And the point is he was wanting to tie this call to social action into the gospel, and I just don't quite see that connection there. I, want, I talked about the guys who wrote When Helping Hurts in my original uh, series opening up this book. Uh, they're saying similar things to Bradley and Keller. So what can we take away from this discussion uh, with these guys? Uh, what can we take away from them? Uh, while it is... I think, first of all, we need to just be careful. Careful that we're not trying to take something that we think is a good and important thing, and in order to elevate it up, try to somehow artificially tie it to the gospel message. Um, I do think that there is good conversation to be had about our place in society. What is our role in social action? But some of the ways that these guys have gone about that discussion has been unhelpful. And, uh, we, and I think, in a sense, finally distracted from the central mission of the church, which is to make disciples. So with that said, any final questions before we close? All right, let's pray. Gracious Father, we are grateful for the honor and privilege of uh, being here today, uh, gathered as your people. I pray that even right now your spirit would be at work in our hearts and in our minds, uh, preparing us to hear the declaration of your word, to prepare us to hear from our King. May we sing with great joy unto the one who has saved us. May we sing with great joy to the one who deserves all praise. May we be knit together as his people to get today as we uh, celebrate the good news of the gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.